invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation 14. Revelation chapter 14. Last week, I mentioned that chapter 14 is somewhat of a tipping point in the uh, narrative of uh, Revelation. As John tells us of the visions that he is seeing, um, as you read the whole book or letter over and over again, you begin to see a flow and you begin to see what is happening. And there's this point for me where as I've been reading it over and over again, which I do every week, I, I come to chapter 14 and you just get this sense that things are, are changing, something is happening. As I said, it seems to be the tipping point. And as I've said repeatedly as well, um, revelation is not something that we, I don't believe that we're intended to sit down and figure out a timeline and to say all of this slots here and here and here and all of this, then this is probably who the Antichrist is and therefore this is this, is this and this is that. And, um, and we've got this nice little timeline that slots together. Uh, revelation wasn't written for that purpose. It was written to reveal to us the coming judgment and the coming uh, final redemption of God's people. There is a rumor in town that there is a pastor who um, uh, has decided that Zelensky from Ukraine is the Antichrist and that he is going to die next Good Friday and rise again from the dead. And then he is going to take out Russia and Belarus and some other country. And, um, and then he's gonna nuke the United States, who is, the, who, is the, who is Babylon. And so he is encouraging his congregation to move to Costa Rica and has given them a list of things that they need to be doing right now to get ready for that move. Um, I'm just gonna say that that's hogwash. And anytime you start to try and pin down this stuff, you're trying to know something more than Jesus knows. Because Jesus has made it clear that he doesn't even know, that that is up to the Father. And uh, I think when the omniscient one says, I don't know, we shouldn't uh, suppose that we know something that he doesn't know. Even at the end of Revelation 14, um, we are, we are going to see that Jesus is waiting for a command from the Father to begin the final harvest. So don't get caught up in that stuff and don't try to slot in a timeline and don't, I don't, I haven't met too many people here who are too excited about whether there's a premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial. And I've told you I'm neither, I'm none of the above. Um, I found too many holes in each one of the systems that you have to ignore. And so it's better for us to not try and figure out a timeline or system, but to see Jesus revealed in his power and glory in this letter. And by the way, Costa Rica seems to be a very nice place, but I wouldn't recommend that you uh, move there. Uh, now, if Zelensky dies on Good Friday, I'll, I'll call him and say, you were right, I guess you were right. but. Uh, 
I, I really don't see that happening. But here in chapter 14, we're moving, we've been going back and forth between a view of the earth dwellers who are the ungodly, unrighteous uh, rebels against God and a view of the saints who are redeemed in heaven. So the, the, the visions keep shifting from the earth to heaven, to earth to heaven. And, in, and, and we see a lot of really nasty things happening on earth and it just seems to be going back and forth. And after we get out of chapter 14, everything just tips over and, and the final judgments happen. And uh, so 14 to me seems very important and I'm going to be spending more time in chapter 14 than we have in the, in the other chapters as we've moved through Revelation. Really what we see in chapter 14 and what follows is a movement towards what Jesus said to pray about in the Lord's Prayer, that it be on earth as it is in heaven. And what we're beginning to see in 14 is that shift to on earth as it is in heaven. Ultimately, the earth is going to be destroyed and there's gonna be a new heaven and earth, but with the new earth, it is going to be the same on earth as it is in heaven because God will come to dwell on earth. In our section for today, which we'll look at in a moment here, there's a final proclamation of the gospel to the earth dwellers. Earth dwellers in, in Revelation, when it speaks of those who dwell on the earth, it is speaking of those who are unbelieving. And so there is this final proclamation that's going to come in the middle of chapter 14, and then there will be two harvests that take place, and then moving forward from there, we'll see the final judgment take place. But I invite you this morning, we're gonna read all of chapter 14, and then we're gonna look at the middle of chapter 14. So beginning in verse one, I invite you to read along as I read out loud. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. If you wanna know what he's talking about when he says they have known no women, they're virgins. As I said last week, it's not that God hates women. You need to listen to last week's sermon and you'll understand who that is. It's Babylon and they have not cooperated with Babylon. Verse six, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, Fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. 
and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commands, the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are now the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and for their deeds, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia or 200 miles. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. I had thought about the harvest picture at the end of including that today and just decided there's too much there and uh, we'll leave that for next week, Lord willing. Hopefully Jesus comes back in the meantime and uh, I, don't have to, I don't have to put together another message and you don't have to sit through me for another week. But uh, if not, we'll look at that passage next week. This chapter opened with the vision of Jesus who is the conquering lamb. And as we go through Revelation, as I said last week, that is the predominant picture of Jesus as the Lamb. I, uh, I mentioned that I was captivated by the idea that the name that is on our forehead is the name of the Lamb, where I expected it to say the name of Jesus or the name of Jesus Christ. But it said, instead it says the name of the Lamb. And that just kind of caught my attention. And then I started thinking, well, where else, where is he called Jesus and where is he called a lamb? And that was when I found that only three times in Revelation is, is he called Jesus in the first chapter and then twice in the last chapter. Uh, in between, he has some other names or titles that are given to him, but 18 times in Revelation, he's called the lamb. And most of the time he's seen in a conquering or victorious position as the lamb. And so it opens with this vision of Jesus, who is the conquering lamb, standing on Mount Zion, the city of our God and of our King with his redeemed people. 
and his people are seen joyfully praising the Lamb, singing a new song, which is the song of the redeemed, as the angels listen. I just, I've just been thinking about that for the last couple weeks of this, this moment where we've seen angels singing, and uh, now in this picture, the angels are quiet. The millions of angels are quiet, listening to the redeemed sing the new song of redemption. And then suddenly the vision changes for John. Again, it's, as I've said before, it's kind of like uh, somebody has a TV remote and John's watching something and the person presses the remote and now there's something else for him to see. So he's just, these visions are happening and they're not happening in the order of how they happen. They're happening in the order of what God wants John to see at that moment. And so the, the channel shifts, so to speak, from the 144,000 with Jesus to the vision of three angels that begin to fly over the earth, crying out to the people on the earth. And I, I would argue for your uh, information so you know where I am on this, I would argue that it's not just unbelievers who are on the earth right now in this uh, vision, it's both believers and unbelievers. And we've just come through severe pers- uh, uh, visions that in chapter 13 are very severe visions of persecution of God's people. And now the scene is shifting to seeing the lamb conquering and a final message being given to the uh, people who live on the earth. These three angels fly over. We saw something similar in chapter eight. After four trumpets had sounded, there is an eagle, it says, that flies over and cries out, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And it's, this eagle is flying over the earth, calling out this message. And um, I didn't say this at the time because I wanted to leave it for now, but it's quite possible that that eagle that flew over the earth was not an actual bird, but one of the four uh, uh, angels that are around the throne. And those four angels that are around the throne, each one of them has a different kind of face and one of them has the face of an eagle. So, so I would speculate that that eagle that flew over in chapter eight is one of those four, the one that looks like an eagle, and now the other three are flying over the earth uh, to give other messages. And again, it's not a timeline, as I said last week. Revelation is is showing different visions at different points that are important as to how God wants to lay this out, not in a timeline, but in a way that they're just different visions and much of the, many of these visions overlap each other. There's different things like when the bowls are poured out, they overlap with the trumpets that are being blown, which overlap with the seals that are being broken. It's not one after the other, they're, they're just presented at different times. But this, in this section, in chapter 14, we have the three angels, and the first angel passes over proclaiming the eternal gospel. Now, I don't know if you remember what I read, but let's just read it again, and you think about whether or not he's proclaiming 
an eternal or the eternal gospel. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, I would ask you, does that sound like a proclamation of the eternal gospel? As you understand the gospel, if you were going to speak to someone and you thought, I'm going to share the gospel with this person, would you say to them, fear God, glorify God, and worship him? Is that the gospel? Or did... John get something wrong here when he tells us about the eternal gospel. We often view the gospel as something that is a take it or leave it scenario. I come and talk to you. I talk to somebody. You talk to somebody. And you, you share information with them, and it's a take it or leave it scenario. Over the years as a pastor, I've been asked to meet with certain people or certain people would come to me and talk to me about the gospel. Um, one was a lady who was being um, inundated with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and her mother asked if I would meet with her because she felt like her daughter was going to go into a cult. And so I sat down with her and walked her through the gospel. I really didn't talk that much about the Jehovah's Witnesses. I just talked to her about the gospel. And I said something to her that I say all the time to people. I'm not going to press you for a decision on this right now. I'm going to put a speed bump here because I'm a good salesperson. I've always been a good salesperson. And I could convince you to buy something that you really don't believe in. And so I don't want to rush you into this. I don't want to push you into this. I'm going to put a speed bump here because I believe that if the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, you're going to come to trust Christ. So I'm just going to leave it here today for you to think about and you to make a decision about in your own time as the Holy Spirit works in your heart. Now with that lady, her name was Heidi, uh, she was just like, no, I, I want to do this. And that was fine with me. Then I'm fine. But we often present the gospel to people in a take it or leave it scenario. Is that fair to say? If you share the gospel with somebody, is that how you do it? But if you look at the wording of what this angel says, it's not a take it or leave it. It's a command. Fear God is written in or spoken in a command mode. Glorify God is a command Worship God is a command. So as this angel, this representative from God, flies overhead over all the earth and cries out this proclamation of the gospel, he is not saying, you know, it's a good thing to think about and maybe you want to someday make a decision about this. He's saying, this is what you must do. You do not have uh, the option, you have the option to reject it, but you are being commanded to do this. And his message again, these three commands are fear God, glorify God, and worship God. And I would speculate that to most of us, and to me as well, 
when I read this, it doesn't sound like the normal gospel. The normal gospel sounds something like Adam sinned, all human beings therefore are sinners. You have sinned. God has said, you should not, you will not lie. Have you lied? Yes, that's sin. God has said, you won't covet. Have you ever coveted someone else's things? Yes, that's sin. I had one person say to me in this process of this kind of a conversation, well, I'm not a sinner. And I said, no, have you ever sinned? I don't know. So then I walked through the Ten Commandments. I said, have you broken any of these? Yeah, then, then you've sinned. Yeah, so you're a sinner. No, I'm not a sinner. I said, if you've sinned, you're a sinner. Nope, I'm not a sinner. I just sinned. He would not accept that he was a sinner. He would not accept that label. He simply had sinned. And therefore he, but he was not therefore a sinner. But when we present the gospel, as we work through that, we, we usually get to a point where we are what we consider to be giving the gospel. And giving the gospel to most of us is talking about a beautiful baby in a manger, a loving savior on the cross, and a victorious king who rose from the dead, right? That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that in Jesus's death, he took your sin, and in his resurrection, he brings us eternal life. And therefore, you want to accept that. That's the gospel. That's the good news, right? Is that fair? Anybody with me here? Anybody thinking about this? Is that right? Is that the gospel that you think of? The baby, the cross, and the empty tomb. And that you can, you can be rescued from hell and you can go to heaven if you simply believe in this. But I would submit to you this morning based on chapter 14 of Revelation that that's not the whole gospel. That's the good news part of the gospel. But there's a bad news part of the gospel. In order for the, for the part of the gospel to be good news, to be important, to be needed, there has to be an understanding of what we would call the bad news of the gospel. I would say that at the heart of the gospel, is the reality that humans stand before God in their sinfulness and rebelliousness against God. I don't need the baby. I don't need the cross. I don't need the empty tomb unless it is a solution to a problem. And what this angel is proclaiming is the part of the gospel that establishes the problem. As we read the Bible, it tells us that all of us, every single one of us, are like wandering sheep who have strayed from God's way. You're familiar with that verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. And even worse, we have encouraged other people to go against God. As Paul speaks in in Ephesians chapter 2, we have all, 
Every single one of us, Paul includes himself, we have all followed the prince of the power of the air, Satan. And we have not only followed him, we have advanced his kingdom, according to Ephesians chapter 2. So every single person stands in a place where they don't fear God, they don't worship God, and they don't glorify God. The message of today is not that humans stand sinful before God and have a core problem of rebellion against God, but instead, as I said, we encourage others to go their own way by telling them to be their best self. That's, honestly, for me, that's not a very hopeful statement. If you had known me when I was younger, being my best self was not a very good thing. Even as someone has said, the best of men are still men at best, and I was one of the worst, I would say, in that category. We say to people to be all that you can be, to do what makes you happy, to follow your own truth, to follow your heart. And I hope that when you hear someone say, you should follow your heart, that what comes to your mind is that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. In other words, to follow your heart is to pursue evil. But the command of this angel is radically different than what we as human beings think or encourage others to do. What this angel is proclaiming is bound up in a heart change that turns from self-reliance and self-fulfillment to a true understanding of God. What this angel proclaims is a heart change that moves us from religious activity or outright rejection of God or just pure apathy towards God to an awe of the person and character of God. When he says fear God, He's not saying be in, be in terror of God. He's saying be in awe of God. I was listening to a podcast this week that Wendy had posted on Facebook. It was an interview with Tim Challies about, was it the four books that you should not have in your library at church? And thankfully we didn't have any of them. When I saw it, she, she posted it and I thought, I gotta listen to this just to find out if we have any of those four books in our library here. We don't. But he, he, they were talking, Tim Challies, if you're familiar with him or not, he's a pastor from Canada who um, uh, has a pretty well followed, um, so word I want, blog. Um, in the subculture of evangelical Christianity. He's pretty popular. But he talked about a book called The Shack and he talked about how it had impacted Christianity and how it's still being sold uh, like hotcakes and people are still reading it in the churches and how it made its way into the evangelical church. And, and it made me think about this passage 
as it was already on my mind, and then to hear that, that the shack diminishes God. It brings God down to the plane of a man, a human being, and makes God seem to think and act and move in ways that human beings move. And a lot of Christians bought into that book and came to conclusions about God that are false. And what this angel proclaims is be in awe of God. He is transcendent. He is not like you in any way other than he made you in his image and that image has been marred by sin. Know God, understand God, understand how great and amazing and powerful and loving and merciful and kind and holy and how strong his wrath is against sin so that as you begin to understand him and learn of him, your heart moves in a way that you begin to be in awe of him. I have, I have long been, in, uh, now let me qualify what I wanted to say. I'm gonna talk about Tiger Woods. As a human being, he's a mess, just like the rest of us. Sadly for him, his mess got put all over TV. Yours hasn't. But when it comes to golf, I am in awe of Tiger Woods and what he can do with a stupid little golf ball. The way he can hit a shot and make it just curl around in a way that I can't even comprehend to land in a specific spot and he looks totally out of control when he hit the ball. He's an, I, I am in awe of Michael Jordan as a basketball player. There, there, are, there are individuals that I am in awe of what they have accomplished, but the reality is that they are human beings who are very flawed. And then there's God. who made Tiger Woods, who made Michael Jordan, who made Dick Buckus, who just died this last week. He was a Chicago Bears linebacker. I was, I was a linebacker. I wanted to be Dick Buckus. Mean, hit hard. That was the way I wanted to be. And that's the way I played. He just died. But God, God made the things that we are often in awe of, and Romans condemns us for worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And this is a call for us to be in awe of our God and to, and to not just sit back and go, wow, but to, to glorify him, to live in a way and to speak of him in a way and to think of him in a way that he is highly exalted not to diminish him by, by using his name as a vulgarity. Not to diminish him by trying to explain him in ways that make him look like a human being and act like a human being. Not to diminish him by putting him, as C.S. Lewis said, putting him in the dock, the court witness box, and making him answer our questions. But to learn of him by spending time in his word and understanding him and what he has done for us so that we speak of who he is, which leads us to worship of God. I am in awe of him. My heart is, is in rapture with him. 
as I think about who he is and what he has done and how he works and his, his power, I want him to be higher. I want to see him and put him in a place that he belongs as much as I possibly can. And then as my heart lives in awe of him and exalts him, from the inside of me comes out worship. That is a word that has gotten very annoying to me these days. The older I get, I'm finding the easier I get annoyed about things, and i got to be careful with that. But I am tired of hearing about worship leaders and worship teams as though the only act of worship that we do is Sunday morning when we gather and sing. And that when, when the worship leader sits down and the singing stops, somehow what I do has nothing to do with worship because the worship leader is sitting down and we're not worshiping anymore. You say, you're picking at words. I'm picking at a philosophy that is in, expressed in words. We are not just doing worship on Sunday morning when somebody's singing with us. Worship on Sunday morning begins when you wake up and it ends when you go to sleep. And we just happen to gather in worship, reading God's word and praying over God's word. It isn't just that we happen, we choose to do this. But we read God's word, we pray through God's word, we sing about God and who he is, and we sing God's words. We listen to someone talk about God's word and how it applies to our life and what needs to change in me in relation to who God is. And we go out from here worshiping, because worship is something that comes from the heart. It's not contrived by a worship leader who says the same thing over and over again until you get some kind of emotional experience and then you go away and say, oh, that was good worship. Oh, I really worshiped today. That was great. You say, are you, are you talking down all the other churches that use those terms? No, I'm not. I'm talking to Northbrook because this is all I'm responsible for. And you say, you're preaching to the choir. Maybe. But what does your Sunday afternoon and evening look like? Are you still thinking about God? Are you still inside exalting Him? Is worship still taking place in your life? Because worship is the outflow of what's happening inside of you in relation to your understanding of God. We live, in, we live in a day and age that is not that much different from any other day and age in, this, in the history of our world. Where people worship, their hearts are wrapped up in, their affections are driven by, 
earth things. Earth dwellers, by nature, worship earthly things. And the angel that flies over is calling to the earth dwellers and he's calling to the heaven dwellers, one day heaven dwellers, and calling them to be in awe of God, to exalt Him, and from the heart worship Him. This angel, this angel is not merely encouraging humans to sing about God or to have warm, fuzzy feelings about God. But it is a worship of the heart that is expressed in what we say and how we live. Hearts that are changed result in changed desires, changed wills, and changed choices. And I would say to you this morning, believer or unbeliever, that when you sin, when you choose to sin, you are revealing what your heart is in awe of and what it worships. The second angel appears in the sky announcing the fall of Babylon. And these words that he caught cries out, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great is a quotation from Isaiah where Isaiah says, Babylon is fallen, fallen. The problem is we're not that familiar with Babylon today. And so this statement, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The question that comes to my mind and should come to your mind, I think, is so what's Babylon? If she's fallen, what's Babylon? And by the way, this is one of those passages that should um, inform you that things are not going in a nice, neat timeline because Babylon is fallen already. The proclamation is that Babylon is destroyed. Who is Babylon? When we get to chapter 17, chapter 17 and chapter 18, those two chapters deal specifically with the fall of Babylon, the destruction of Babylon. Actually, an angel comes to John and says, let me show you what's happened to Babylon. And he takes John and there's another vision to see how Babylon has been destroyed. And chapter 18, 17 and 18 deal with that. And there's a celebration that Babylon has been destroyed. So my my thought is that we'll talk about Babylon and the destruction of Babylon when we get to chapter 17 and 18. For time's sake today, I'm just going to give you the opinion of another person, a commentator named Joel Beek. Um, his commentary is really good. If you want to purchase a commentary on Revelation, Beek is very good. He's, he's very accessible um, and has great application. 
But he, he says in his commentary, it is incorrect to identify Babylon as signifying one institution or a particular place or time in history. Like for example, for somebody to say that the United States is Babylon, I, I can see that, that the United States has become very much like Babylon was. Uh, but to say that a particular country in a particular time is, is what he's talking about here in relation to Babylon, Beek would say that's not accurate. He says the Bible makes it clear that Babylon is a constant factor in human history. It is a symbol not of just one city, institution, person, or movement, but a symbol of severe opposition to God. Babylon is the capital of the Antichrist's kingdom, just as the heavenly Jerusalem is the capital of God's kingdom. Babylon, I would say it this way, Babylon represents a philosophy, it re represents a lifestyle, it represents a false worship. Babylon is, is bound up in um, opposition to God, rebellion against God. And when we get to chapter 17 and 18, we'll talk more about it. For, for today, uh, again, it just represents everyone and everything that stands in opposition to God and that they will face judgment and defeat. And that is good news. When the angel cries out, Babylon is fallen, fallen, it's great news to God's people because it means that justice has rained down. What God has promised is happening. And then there's a third angel. And its message seems to be connected to the first and to the second. The third angel comes with a loud voice saying, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Later in the chapter, in verse 19, he's going to talk about the winepress of God. And in verse 20, he's going to talk about the blood that flows from the winepress. And that is connected directly to what the third angel has to say. It is the future. What this third angel is proclaiming to the world is the future of all who do not obey the commands of the first angel. And it's the future of all who ally themselves with Babylon spoken about by the second angel. There is a gospel being proclaimed, but the part of the gospel that's being proclaimed is the reason why Jesus came to die. And in this message from the third angel, the dragon, the antichrist, the beast, Babylon, and all who follow them face a horrible future in the lake of fire. It is a place of torment with fire and sulfur, a place where one burns yet is never consumed, and so therefore the smoke off of the body of the person. It isn't just a spirit that's in the lake of fire, we're told that the bodies are brought back from the grave. They're judged at the white, great white throne judgment. And then those who 
are not believers are cast into the lake of fire. And the idea here, the smoke of one's torment goes up forever and ever, is not referring to smoke coming off of whatever is burning the coals or whatever that are there. But the idea of this, the, the, their smoke, the smoke of one's torment, it's their bodies eternally on fire, but never consumed and the smoke rising. Now, I know that there are some very important people who dismiss hell today. They say it's not real. It's just a threat. It's actually annihilation. They, they find all kinds of mental gymnastics and interpretational gymnastics to get around it and try to explain it away. And in the end, they make Jesus a liar or very confused. The Bible is very, very, very clear that hell and the lake of fire are a very real place. And that those who reject Christ will forever be tormented in that lake of fire. It is a place of eternal inner chaos. That word, there's no rest, is not that they never get a chance to sleep, but rather that there is just massive anxiety, inner chaos that is there forever. If you've ever had a moment of anxiety and you feel that sense of, of, this, of pressing in on you and like you can't get air, just put that on steroids forever. Inwardly and outwardly, it is a place of eternal burning. It is a place where anxiety has no restraint or end. And you know, as you read this, some might object, well, that's not very pleasant. And I thought the gospel was good news. Some might object because they've heard that God is merciful, loving, and takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That is true. He is merciful, he is loving, and when the wicked die, he does not sit back and smile. But the question is raised, how could that kind of God send someone to eternal torment? And I would remind you that that kind of God demonstrated the greatest level of mercy and love to humanity when he sent his only son to die in the place of sinners who didn't want him. If you are ever going to question the mercy of God, the answer to your questions about the mercy of God are answered at the cross. If you ever have a question about the love of God, you remember how Jesus in love spread his hands and was nailed to the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is not a question, when it comes to judgment, it is not a question of the mercy and love of God. It is the reality of consequences for choices made and consequences for the rejection of the offer God has made and ultimately a rejection of God himself.
God has made a way to forgiveness for all who will believe and trust in Jesus. And what I find interesting is that when it says that God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked, it would seem that it is only God who finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Because we as humans find great pleasure in the death or the demise of the most wicked. He got what was coming to him. Karma. What goes around comes around. So before we point a finger at God, we need to understand our own hearts and how we are not like God. Because we celebrate the death of the wicked. Osama bin Laden. For recent history. I want to ask you a very personal pointed question in light of the proclamation of the three angels. Are you a follower of the dragon? According to Jesus, there are those whose father is the devil and who are of the brood or family of serpents. And he spoke those words to very religious people. People who were probably very were more religious and more moral than most of us. These very moral people who we call Pharisees and we think very low of them, these very moral people were held in the highest of esteem by all the people around them. They were the Michael Jordans and the Tiger Woods of the spiritual world. And Jesus called them children of the devil and a brood of vipers. These very moral people eventually killed Jesus because they rejected his claims that he was the promised one whose blood would bring forgiveness of sinners. And I would say this to you this morning, that if you believe that God accepts you because of your good works, there's a very good chance that you're a follower of the devil. And I would say to you this morning that if you are a believer who believes that God likes you better or shows you favor because you read your Bible this morning or whatever, your heart is believing what the devil, the serpent, the dragon, wants you to believe about God. You're thinking like the dragon. If you, this morning, think that if you do something good, God will do something good back to you, you have swallowed wholesale the dragon's bill of goods. The reality is, that this God whom we are to be in awe of and to exalt and to worship out of his love and mercy saves people, gives them the righteousness of Christ, fills them with the Holy Spirit, 
and welcomes them into his presence uh, because of the obedience of Christ that's been credited to you. All your works as an unbeliever are filthy rags. And all your works as a believer that are good are because of the Holy Spirit's work in you. When we stand before God, I have said many times there is a pastor who's now chancellor of a seminary, Ligon Duncan. I have said many times that because of how God used him in my life and and he used Terry in my life in 2012, that any fruit of my ministry for the future should go to Terry and Ligon Duncan. But I also recognize that any fruit from my ministry or life at all is because of the Holy Spirit and God's good, gracious work in me, not because of any abilities that I have. I would ask you this morning if you've received the mark of the Lamb and of his Father, do you stand before God accepted because of the good works of Jesus or your own good works? And I want to say as I close this morning that I have no desire to create doubt in anyone who is trusting only in Jesus' sacrifice for forgiveness, sin, and the favor of God. But at the same time, I am reminded of something the Apostle Paul wrote in his second letter to the church of Corinth. Towards the end, after he's had this verbal response, written response to some of their criticisms and their attacks, at the end of the letter, after saying a lot about faithfulness to Jesus and living in a way that demonstrates that one is a follower of Jesus, he says this, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. And then he says, test yourselves. He's writing to a church. He's writing to a group of people that consider themselves followers of the Lamb, that consider themselves believers. And he says to these people, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. So I have no desire to create doubt What I do have a desire is for all of us to be continually looking at our lives and whether we live lives that that are in awe of God, that glorify God, and because of what's happening inside of us, live and speak in ways that worship God. I would encourage each of us to evaluate whether we are becoming more like Jesus whether the fruit of the Spirit is increasing in our lives, because it's extremely important for us to know whether we are simply religious practitioners or true disciples of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the abundance of your love. that you displayed your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That to know you is to know love. 
We talk about love. We talk about the things we love. But the reality is real, genuine love can only be known by those who know you. And Father, again, I am reminded of John's statement in his first letter. Look at how amazing it is that God has lavished his love on us and that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. Father, help us to grow in our understanding of who you are, not only in your love and your mercy, but in your righteousness and in your wrath. Help us to understand the gift that you have given in your Son, that you call all persons to repentance, to turn from sin and turn to you through Jesus. And Father, as we come to affirm that we are your children, help us to grow in awe of what you've done for us. Help us to grow in wanting and acting upon elevating who you are in our lives to the point that our hearts spill over with worship in how we speak and in how we live. Father, may we cooperate to keep in step with the Spirit so that the fruit of the Spirit is in us and abounding. We love you. In your son's name, amen.